you're listening to the Sustainable Angler Podcast. I'm your host, Rick Crawford. This episode was originally recorded at the IFTD trade show, where I moderated a climate change panel discussion, and the panelists included uh, Hillary Hutchison from Larry's Fly and Supply Fly Shop, Garrison Doctor, co-founder of Rep Your Water, John Land Lacoque, CEO of Fish Pond, and Dr. Aaron Adams from Bonefish and Tarpon Trust. Hope you enjoy. This episode of The Sustainable Angler is brought to you by Emerger Strategies. Use your business to save the planet. Peer-reviewed journals, 
who agreed that burning fossil fuels emits greenhouse gas emissions, which is warming our planet. So, if y'all haven't picked up from the accent, I'm, I'm from the South, and so I hear quite a bit of um, some, some backlash and, and when, when I talk about climate change. So, I thought it might be a, a good idea to make that a little bit more relatable. And um, so, let, let's play this scenario out. You have, uh, you've been diagnosed with a cancer, and uh, you go to see 100 doctors. And 97 of them telling you that if you get chemo, change your diet um, and exercise, you have a good chance of extending your life a number of years. But if you don't, you'll die in the next six months. But then there's three of them who say, keep on your current course, you'll probably go. Who are you going to listen to in that scenario? So it's really just common sense. These are climate scientists who this is what they do for a living. They studied it and they agree burning fossil fuels is causing climate change. So one of the goals of this panel is to educate and create more awareness about climate change. So I thought I'd run through just a few quick facts on climate change before we dive into the panel. Um, sea levels have risen eight inches over the last century, and what's most shocking is that uh, it's nearly doubled in the last two decades. So when sea level rises, it can impact our inshore nurseries for fish, uh, could also infiltrate our fresh groundwater. Uh, there's been a 30% increase in ocean acidity, and ocean uh, acidification makes it more difficult for shelled animals like oysters, as well as uh, crustaceans like shrimp and crabs um, to build their shells and survive, and that has ripple effects throughout the ecosystem. Um, there's been 16 record-breaking hottest years since 2000, 2016 being the hottest. So I live in the low country of South Carolina, and higher land and water temperatures combined with more frequent droughts are already causing our marshes to disappear. This also has a ripple effect throughout our fisheries and ecosystems. The average worldwide temperature has increased one and a half degrees Fahrenheit compared to the last century. So warmer river temperatures put stress on cold water species like trout. And as of last week, we're at 411 parts per million is the average concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere. When you compare that to pre-industrial um, revolution, um, over the last 400,000 years, it was at 275 parts per million. So this results in less snowpack, more wildfires, more frequent droughts, all of which making it more difficult for cold water species to survive. So um, our objective here today um, is to really not only educate and create awareness about climate change, um, but also learn how some businesses are turning that, that into a business opportunity. So um, with that, I'd like to introduce our panel here. Um, over here on the far side, we've got Dr. Aaron Adams, with the director, who is the Director of Science and Conservation with Bonefish Tarpon Trust. Um, he's also a senior scientist with Harbor Branch Oceanographic Institute at Florida Atlantic University, and has lived and worked on both U.S. coasts throughout the Caribbean, and has been uh, conducting fish research for the last 25 years. Uh, Garrison Doctor here in this uh, good-looking Everglades hat uh, is uh, with uh, Rector Water, um, is co-founder of Rector Water uh, with his wife Corinne, and uh, they've created an apparel brand dedicated to providing uniquely designed, top-quality gear for hunters and anglers. Um, while 
increasing support of local conservation and inspired exploration. Uh, Rector Water uh, in 2017 has donated over $54,000 to their conservation partners and is currently working on their 2020 sustainability goals of achieving zero greenhouse gas emissions um, as well as zero waste from their uh, headquarters. Hillary Hutchison is the guide and Just 
um, proposed two stonefly species to the U.S. Endangered Species Act to the list, which is a big deal because that's top of the food chain stuff. Like that's like for, for these fish, for native Westlip cutthroat. We live in the most biodiverse ecosystem in the lower 48 states that's fully at risk and this, these two stoneflies, meltwater stonefly and the western glacier stonefly could be, you know, key to that kind of demise because they're holding those keys and, and um, being places like this and talking to people who can also create that ripple effect and, and move forward and, and talk more and, and um, ultimately, you know, um, kind of reverse some policy. And so, so that's where, for me, that's where the action goes is, is for the policy and uh, having that political will and um, speaking with our elected leadership. Agreed. And, and so, Erin, um, I'm curious to know, um, you've been studying this for 25 years. Um, when did you first become aware of the impacts of climate change on our, our fisheries? Um, well, I guess I could look in hindsight, um, and more than 25 years ago. Um, I started my fish research in the Caribbean, um, and at that point, it already had significant um, diseases and die-offs um, that in hindsight uh, probably associated with climate change. Massive coral diseases and die-offs, um, uh, some other issues, changes in um, bait fish distributions um, that weren't associated with harvest. Um, and we're seeing all those play out now um, in other locations. Um, so in hindsight, I guess my entire career has kind of been touched by, by climate change. What's been most uh, frustrating and disturbing is that our resource management policies and even uh, social policies are still in a 1950s mindset, whereas the universe that we're working in now is obviously much farther along than that. Um, and the rate of change is, is uh, increasing, which makes um, us still in a 1950s mindset uh, even more of a problem every day. Um, so, I mean, I grew up in uh, Chesapeake Bay, and as I grew up, the bay was crashing ecologically, and a lot of that was due to pollution. Um, but a lot of that, hindsight again, was also due to climate change. The introduction of new diseases that uh, wouldn't have a foothold prior. New species moving northward that hadn't been there before. Um, more variable weather uh, that affected uh, the bay's ecosystems, uh, especially waterfowl, pretty tremendously. Um, and although Chesapeake Bay improved, because they've addressed a lot of the anthropogenic inputs nearby, pollution and runoff, um, there's still, uh, climate change is pretty much the third rail. Um, and it's not just directly dealing with our fisheries or resources like uh, stoneflies. Those are, what we're seeing with our fisheries are the symptoms of the disease. And the disease, even climate change, is a symptom of a larger disease. So, um, kind of circling back to Florida, it's not just sea level rise. It's also water management policies that are, again, going back to the 1950s, so that there's more saltwater intrusion into inland areas. Um, it's affecting the nursery habitats for species like tarpon and snook, which use the mangroves. 
Um, the way Florida allows land development, you can't build, you can build up to but not into red mangroves, which means that sea level rises, there's no place for those mangroves or salt marshes for that matter to retreat. Uh, South Carolina, looking at the state's development plan, looking out 50 years, they're going to do the same thing. So sea level rises where you are, all those red fish and trout nurseries, um, they're going to get squeezed. Um, so, I mean, I guess that's one of the one of the advantages to having been in this for um, for a while uh, is seeing those collective changes um, and having been at the point for at least half of that time uh, with colleagues where we knew what was going on, we could predict it and have been talking about it, um, but the changes have been extremely slow, so it's frustrating, especially to hear from like Hillary um, seeing that in her guideline, um, that tells you that it's changing extremely fast. And the other thing I can say before I'll, I'll shut up um, is this isn't something you see a gradual change over time. This is this happens and then there's a cliff that drops And then it happens and the cliff drops off. Um, there's none of this long term or you can see it. It, it happens in um, pretty dramatic fashion, um, cliff fall. And I think everybody here can probably think of an example of that happening. Um, bonefish in the far east, straight bass in the Atlantic, keep going on and on about and you get to a certain point, excuse me, um, where you do get to a point of no recovery. Um, and I don't want to be too much of a downer because we do need to uh, get people energized, but I think people do have to realize that uh, those are the consequences. Yeah. And there's places in Florida now, and part of it, again, it's a mix. It's climate change, water mismanagement, etc. But there are places in Florida now um, that are pretty close to that, that edge. And as climate changes, those places become less resilient and less able to recover, which makes it even more uh, important to uh, sound the alarm. And, and, and Garrison actually has um, talked about the trip to down to Patagonia. And I know that, um, can, can you elaborate a little bit more? I know y'all have seen some, some pretty alarming things down yeah, absolutely. I mean, Hillary obviously spoke to this already and can speak more to it, but down there in southern Patagonia, you know, I think anywhere in the world where there's glaciers right now, it's very dramatic to visually see this is what's happening. So clear. Um, but some of the, you know, it's kind of an interesting place down there, obviously, because salmonids aren't native, but fantastic trout fishing. Um, but some of these places where trout live now, um, I mean, they're drying up. And we were fishing lakes that, you know, the river doesn't flow out the lake, and it's dropping 18 inches a year because there just isn't the precipitation that they used to get anymore. I mean, they're going away. And the glaciers are going away. So, you know, I think there's certain places where it's extremely dramatic to see those visual changes in action. But Johnny and I were talking. We were, we're in Colorado, and when we see it every year, higher temps, river closures, I mean, it, you know, it's, it's more and more. Yeah, and I was actually going to be my next follow-up, because I know y'all are both in Colorado, so um, what, are y'all, what are you actually visibly able to see? That's one thing, I think, with climate change, that people don't get it, they think it's this, some, like, abstract thing, and 
greenhouse gas emissions are a form of pollution, but you can't see it. But now we're seeing the impacts of it. So I'm curious to know, what are we all seeing in Colorado? Well, from my perspective, it, you know, to commiserate with uh, Aaron had mentioned, I mean, people start to wake up and you start to see it in your own backyard. Uh, Florida, uh, we went to Washington up with Hillary. Uh, we went with a group called Protect Our Winners. We had Olympic athletes with us, and we were at a congressional panel uh, in Senate offices where most of the representatives were from Florida. And they were waking up. They were concerned. They were there. They were attending. Uh, because uh, hurricane, I can't remember the So uh, anyhow, so they are concerned, their constituents are concerned, so they're reacting. And they're going to be concerned about it. They want to move it up to policy uh, perspective. But what we see in our own backyard, it all of a sudden when it becomes real, you start to take change. But we can't wait for that to happen. In other words, we can't just wait to actually have it physically impact us, economically impact us before we take uh, a lead on this. So I think as an industry, how we protect our resources, how do we protect what we love, I think um, we need to step up to the plate as an industry, people who love our resources, people who love our water, people who love our country. I think our public lands and our water and our habitat, the species that we have on the 646 million acres of public land um, is part of the identity of America. And I think that it's, it's critical that we, we see that uh, as far as the lifeblood, as far as who we are. Um, not just for ourselves, but you know, for the species that live here as well. Uh, in Colorado, to be more specific to your question, um, you know, what we see happening around us uh, is different from Florida, but even in the high country, I live at 8,200 feet in the high country of Colorado on the western slope. Uh, we got a very low snowpack this year, um, and uh, my ponds, I have a series of ponds in, in the ranch where I live, uh, and this year, and I've marked down from the, from the species of birds show up, when the ice melts, I mean, for 27 years I lived on this ranch. This year, my ponds melted one month earlier than, than the last 27 years, which have always been almost within days of each other. So, this, this one example, uh, and I'm seeing it from the species migration perspective, how species are coming at different times and, and leaving at different times. So, I'm, I'm personally, personally I'm aware of it. Uh, but, you know, I'm uh, with people like Hillary and Aaron uh, that we have interacted with before on a lot of panels and discussions. You know, it's time for us all to step up to the plate. I'm really appreciative of you putting a panel like this together because we need to discuss these issues. Uh, and we need to discuss this industry because uh, policy will change, especially when there's economics behind it. So as the business of sport fishing and fisheries, uh, people who love to be out of boats, catching fish, etc. When we start to speak up, people will listen in Washington because it impacts us financially, economically. I think that's the best way to kind of get the ball moving. Uh, I can keep going here, but but I think you know we we're seeing these changes uh, around us, and we need to react to this quickly. Yeah. Uh, and but I'll, I'll, I'll pass on. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. I, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, and so I'm also, to, to get a little bit more specific, you just mentioned stoneflies in Montana. Is there anything else that you're uh, visual, like, visibly able to see here in fact? Sure. So the most visual thing, I think, um, for my anglers on the trip is the fish, right? Because ultimately they came to go fishing and they get this bonus of all this beautiful area, but they're catching a fish 
and the pictures that they may have seen and made beans from a long time ago, since this has been a bucket list trip for them, have been your native West Slope black spotted cutthroat trout. And that's the beautiful green body and you know the big spots going all the way down, and then obviously that really prolific orange cut under the jaw. Well, now it's a damn rainbow, <laughs> and um, and that might not sound so bad, but when you you know made it your destination to come and catch this native species that is really the only place where you can get this fully intact ecosystem with this fish that's been the same fish for the beginning of history, um, and now suddenly we have this giant threat of hybridization with rainbows that's enhanced by climate change, um, it's not what you signed up for. It's not what you came for. So literally the fish that are cutthroats now that are moving up through the system, um, the hybridization of rainbow trout and cutthroat are the number one threat to the biodiversity in the ecosystem that is fully intact, the only one in the lower 48 states. So that is huge because that's what people came here for. You know, people want to go fishing for big brown trout in other parts of Montana and rainbow in other parts of Montana, but when they come to Glacier, you know, they want to come see kind of this really special fishery. And, I mean, that's the main thing in fishery. And, and literally, that is, um, that's not just at risk, but, but in, it, it's happening now. The fish we're catching are hybrid. And um, it's really heartbreaking because when I first started guiding 25 years ago, it was really a different fish. It was a you know big native West Slope cutthroat, and now you know it's a it's a cutthroat. So we still we still got them intact, but we're seeing the hybridization moving up um, from the lower part of the system. So um, we're just right at that point. You know, just like you said, that tipping point, that cut. And I've seen the, the river change. I've seen you know obviously the glaciers are leaving, but the actual fish. You know, when it comes to that, that's when it's really like, whoa, this is a different fish than that right now. Yeah, yeah, and, and near to, to, I guess, to add on to that, I mean, what, what about flat species specifically, benefish, tarpon, pernil? Oh, sure. Uh, yeah. Just in my own fishing experience. So in 2000, um, the, the tarpon season in uh, Charlotte Harbor, which is the Golden Grand Pass area, um, really started. May 15th. Um, you could you could work hard to find an occasional fish prior, but mid-May is pretty much it. Uh, now, reliably, uh, April 1st. All right. So in 15, 16 years or so, 18 years, um, there's been a six-week uh, movement of when those tarpon first migrate in. Um, they're seeing the same, uh, similar types of changes in the seasonality in the Florida Keys, Florida Bay. Um, so that's, I mean, that's just right there. Uh, we're working, uh, Andy Danilchuk, who's in the audience, is uh, leading a tarpon acoustic tracking project. And we're working a lot with uh, guides and anglers up in Georgia and South Carolina. Um, 15, 20 years ago, there may have been one or two guides who would target tarpon. Uh, now, um, but there's dozens easily. Their, their season used to be mostly in the late summer, fall, August, September, with uh, Menhaden and Mullet migrating south. Uh, they're getting in <coughs> person. Uh, they're actually being able to book trips to Georgia starting June. Um, some of our colleagues have done work on the physiology of bonefish. And in the summers now, um, in a lot of places, uh, we back country creeks of bonefish. You know, we love the way those kind of mangrove creek kind of thing. Uh, even now they're starting to get so hot because they're right at the 
maximum for bonefish. So as temperatures continue to increase, um, those summer months are going to be more stressful, which means less habitat for bonefish to move into to escape sharks, those kinds of things. Um, so yeah, we're seeing those types of changes, both from a scientific perspective, but also from a uh, fishing perspective already. Um, tarpon, um, you look at the old records, they say, sure, they were paid to see them up north. Uh, we're getting um, reports from New Jersey every year uh, now on tarpon. Um, not a lot, but in fact, there. We had uh, commercial net fishermen send us some bonefish from Long Island, New York, and they weren't small. I mean, these guys were 22 inches. We're um, not sure which species, but they hadn't seen those types of things before. Um, so those changes in the ocean world are, are, are happening. And another example is not class, but I think it's pretty telling uh, black sea bass, which is a reef species, had been mid Atlantic. Um, as late as midnight, that was it. Now it's so abundant off from England, uh, people can't not catch them. And they already have regulations here in England before But they're kind of pushing out other species. So when you see those tech dramatic uh, geographical shifts and uh, how fish are distributed, that worries them. Um, but we also realize tarpon have been around for 50 years. So they've gone through geographical shifts before. Um, even more worrisome than tarpon then is bonefish, because they don't, they have small numbers. So if the class they live on become too hot for six months out of the year, um, then they're, they're in serious trouble as far as uh, their long-term survival. And there's a lot of issues with the bonefish population climb keys. Uh, one of them that uh, is uh, coming up repeatedly is climate change how that's affected water temperatures, but also the currents, the ocean currents that deliver larvae. Um, so yeah, we, we can see it. The question is, how do we address it from a policy the Right. I think that's, you know, that's obviously the, the big part of it is to, to make bigger change possible. It needs to be addressed at a policy level. Um, but it's also things that we as individuals, but especially as companies, and even more so as an industry, um, I think could have a, a massive impact. Is you know, what if uh, fly fishing was the first industry to go zero greenhouse gas emissions for purchased electricity? Um, why did why grow the sport by doing some good along the way? So um, that could be a possibility. Um, I do want to shift gears a little bit and talk a little bit more optimistically about. Um, um, Before I move on from that, since you said policy, I'll go back to my original statement. We know that if we stop all CO2 emissions now, right, we've already set the ball rolling. Mm -hmm. So there's already going to be more drastic changes than we've seen now for stable. Um, that means that even as we go towards trying to say zero greenhouse emissions from the, the industry, the industry also has to push for policy changes that give the fishery the resilience to last through what's coming. Yeah. So I'll go back to the, the wetlands, right? If, if our national policy continues to be that you can build up to the current wetland, um, then there's no place for those wetlands to go at sea level rise. Um, if we continue to not uh, address issues like with water temperatures in the rivers, 
and allow geographic changes in how travel is driven in salmon, um, then they're not going to make it through this next decade. So I think there has to be, it can't just be about greenhouse gases, it has to be about changing policy to give our systems a resilience to get through that. Yeah, I, I totally, absolutely 100% agree because um, humans and animals can adapt to climate change, we've already seen that. A glacier can't adapt, it doesn't have the ability to adapt, it just goes. And so when your water is fed by a glacier and by groundwater, and so we already know it's going to be gone, then we already need to plan ahead for what happens to those fish um, once all this water is gone, because it's nearly gone. So um, that would mean new policy for bull trout protected species like native cutthroat. And those are things that we're not seeing in the planning process yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, thinking ahead, thinking um, generations ahead is something that is required uh, going forward on uh, the policy level. You're absolutely right. You can't, there's going to be, it's going to get worse for the better. Well, Garrison, um, I know that Russia Water has been working to minimize its environmental impact of its operations. Um, if there's any other companies that are out uh, in the audience today, you know, what's some advice you might have for um, a company that's looking to start tackling climate change and maybe implement a sustainable business model? Well, I think it's just trying to pick off what you can do. I think it's one thing that you know, it's an impediment to all of us as individuals and companies. Is you know, it's, a, it's an intimidating process, intimidating subject to tackle. So, think off the things that you can do to you know, offset greenhouse gas emissions from your headquarters, which we're working hard to do. Uh, I wrote down some notes. Um, you know, tracking I think is really important. Like looking at the life cycle footprint of your product and of your warehouse and knowing kind of what that is a little bit and then being able to address pieces of that I think is really important. Um, you know, we're working really hard to reduce all of our waste, reduce waste to landfill. Um, and, and that's something that I think has actually been pretty easy for us to achieve out of our main factory, uh, you know, main warehouse, excuse me, headquarters. Um, that's been pretty pretty doable, and we get really great feedback from our customer base on any pieces that we do and have been able to tackle, even if they're relatively small. Um, they're pieces that we can hopefully build on and continue to build on. Um, you know, to Aaron's point, to Hillary's point, you know, we work a lot with conservation partners like the Fallen Fish and Harbor Trust, like Trout Unlimited, you know, I think that's really important from a policy perspective, but also in terms of refuges. You know, in Colorado, TU works a lot on habitat. If we don't work on habitat and, and places where trout can take refuge in higher water temperature situations, you know, that's where, you know, small things really make a difference. So I think putting some money to, to the science and to the policy to get out in front of people as a company is important. Um, I also just think using our platforms uh, to educate. You know, our customer base is primarily late 20s to very early 30s. Um, that demographic historically hasn't been super involved in the nonprofit um, environmental community. That's mainly been a little bit older historically. So I think for us, it's really important to tell that story to our customer base 
and try to really grow some involvement and awareness with that um, that demographic and that generation. Um, and that's something that doesn't take uh, you know doesn't take a lot of effort as a company for us to take a stand and try to educate and try to promote some awareness on these things. That it's not taking resources from our product line. So I think that's something that you know people can do and. And that as an industry we should do more, yeah. and that you know Johnny has been you know a leader on and, and working hard on as well. Yeah, and I was going to follow up with, with John too. And you know they're they're a B course, a venture corporation that they give back. They meet a rigorous environmental standard. Um, what advice? Similar question, but you know if someone is thinking about hey you know. I think a lot of companies are scared to talk about climate change because they don't want to alienate some of their customer base. And frankly, we just don't have time to <coughs> So um, I also think there's a lot of people who will remain loyal to a brand um, because of that. Um, when, when, a, when a business takes a stand and you know they stand for something and that, is, that aligns with your own values, you will remain loyal to them. So um, John, could you speak to you all being a, a, a B Corp? And, with some maybe practical advice you would give to a company who's making those first steps to say, hey, we're, you know, we're actually going to start talking about climate change and we're going to do something about it. Yeah. Uh, well, I think Fishpond has adopted some principles of environmental advocacy through our recycled materials starting 10 years ago. We moved all of our fabrics over to recycle fishing net, industrial waste. So we continue to do that, but I knew that was just a start. And, you know, obviously we've built a, a strong customer base and beliefs in that, but I think a lot of people still don't really have a clue really maybe that we can do that. Uh, but I think if we continue to work towards uh, learning and learning how to be better leaders in business, um, taking a stand and becoming a big corporate part of that, uh, it's led me in a lot of different ways. Uh, for example, uh, last year I went to Telluride, Colorado, and I joined uh, what we call through the outdoor industry called the CEO Climate uh, Pledge. It was a summit, it was leaders from all sorts of industry, from Patagonia, Ben and Jerry's ice cream, without the computer, Microsoft. And uh, it was CEOs from companies who basically there to kind of to learn how to lead the charge from their, their, their base, their employees, to be, become better communicators on the topic of climate change. And admittedly, I don't, didn't know a whole lot about climate change. In other words, we all live on the periphery of it, we see it, we feel it. But how do you communicate about climate change? What is climate change to, to a lot of people? And it's very scary. And I think what I've learned over the process is that it's better to talk about, and not the politics of climate change, but the impact of climate change. Um, we all feel the impact. But when you start bringing up the political nature of climate change, it becomes very divided. And people start taking sides, and they start debating, et cetera. But I think we need to focus on the impacts and communicating that clearly to our businesses. Um, ben and Jerry's uh, ice cream that was there uh, made a very poignant comment uh, when he said that um, they, as a business, they actually make money when they piss people off. In other words, when they bring up controversial subjects, when they, when they communicate about them, when they spark that debate, if there's a, there's a strong part of the, of, of the population that says, you know what, thank you for doing that, we're going to support you. And, and they know that when they piss people off, there's going to be a certain number of people who aren't going to buy their product. But we can't be afraid of that. I think as industry and business leaders uh, in this country, uh, this industry specifically has a huge amount of power. 
we have we have we, we have to protect not only our economy, but we have to protect the species that don't have a voice. And like Hillary's talking about here and there's in that, you know, we have there's there's a resource out there that we have to protect for a whole lot more reasons than our businesses or our own personal you know, self-interest. You know, there's there's species out there that are begging for us to be clear and decisive as far as how we uh, make decisions and communicate about this in the future. So B Corp is just one level, we're taking a stand. Uh, you know, we, we work with Fish and Wildlife Service, with, with uh, Ryan over here, with, with Beyond the Pond, um, uh, you know, National Fish Habitat Partnerships. There's a big voice out there that collectively we can actually talk about this issue, uh, communicate about it, and teach people how to communicate about it. Collectively, we're going to start to drive towards that, that place where we can uh, make a shift, which is important. Yeah. And, and what would y'all say um, from, a, from a business perspective, you know, Hillary, you know, the fly shop, Paris, and Apparel bring it, John, designing products, light bags, and things. What are some of the, the greatest benefits, or what have been the, the greatest benefits to your business from adopting the sustainable business model? Have you seen an increase in sales, or customer loyalty, or, 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 or brand awareness, and any of those types of I'll speak um, on behalf of guiding, you know, customer service is obviously the, the number one thing and something that has been um, a pleasant benefit to running a sustainable guiding business and, and fly shop is um, that that our clients feel taken care of. I mean, we don't have plastic water bottles rolling through the boat. It doesn't look tacky. Suddenly you see that and it looks cheap and they don't feel like they, they're getting a top shelf experience. But really when you've taken a little bit more time to explain kind of where they are and where they're fishing and, and what it means to be doing the special thing that we're all doing together because Let's, let's be real. This is ridiculous what we're doing. We're trying to fool a pea brain pesca with these little pieces of fluff that we spent all winter trying to make look real. I mean, it's just ridiculous, right? But it's so much more than that. It's this big, powerful thing. And when you reel it in and they all are there with you together and you have this captive audience, it's a special time. And whether it's in the shop or whether it's in the boat, um, they feel like kind of sharing this environment together and it's a good time. I mean, it's lots of high fives and good times, right? Um, and when that's all shared together, and you've made that experience just all part of this whole environmental sharing, I think it's, it's something that they can take home with them and they feel that they've been taken care of. So it's just this high-level customer service, really, when you think about that. It's like caring about it, caring about your business, when they see the passion you put into it, it goes to them. It's yeah. for them. You know, it's not just for your children's children, it's for theirs. Because we want them to come back too. Um, and so they see that that's how I'm putting food in the place, you know, at the table to feed my kids. They're a part of that, you know. They're they're kind of a part of my life, and I'm a part of theirs. So I feel like just running a sustainable business is a way of sharing together and um, kind of all being part of this global experience. And I can speak for us and say, you know, we have seen absolutely. Um, increase in customer loyalty. I think part of that is due to um, you know the sustainability kind of goals and uh, what we're trying to do at Voice there and, and some stands that we've made. Um, you know, I, I really enjoy conversations with people that call in. You know, we have a lot of regional themed gear and we donate back regionally to conservation partners off of that. So it puts us in touch with different. Um, fishing communities all across the country. And, you know, for example, I had a guy call in, and he's on the West Coast, and he really liked one of our steelhead designs, but he didn't want to support the Wild Steelhead Coalition. 
and all of our West Coast gear, um, you know, portion goes back to well, Silicon Village. So that was actually a really fun conversation for me because he didn't necessarily agree. I mean, he wants to put hatchery fish in his cooler, and that's his thing. But to have those conversations with people like, why are you doing this? Yeah. Right? I think those are really important conversations to have, too. Um, but we, we do see just overwhelming positive feedback and increase in, in customer loyalty when we do um, put out anything that. Uh, you know, makes a little bit of a stand, like Johnny was saying. Yeah. And I think there's the other aspect, besides our consumers, is that when we have this passion, like Hillary just seems to be the garrison, that when we have this passion to care for something, it puts us all into this kind of little tribe that we're all together. And I think and, and even this little bit right here today, because we care so much, uh, you know, and with our businesses, look where it's being today. I mean, we, everybody in this room cares for one reason or another, right? So how do you mobilize these troops and this tribe that we have? And I think that's the exciting part. And I think it's beyond, I think even, you know, I mean, I think it's trying to engage with our consumers, you care, we have a great platform to communicate a lot of different issues. But I love the fact that this as an industry, and like putting this all together, that we're, we're coalescing, we're actually finding ways, uh, you know, and pure fishing. I mean, we're looking at waste on plastics right now, and it's, not, it's kind of funny. We're sitting right here, and there's this plastic water bottle right here, you know, and in industries, and, and we see it all the time. And that you know, there, there's there's shifts that we need to make that are around us all the time that are just habitual. Yeah. And I think you know, like how we actually communicate and get our consumers to learn how to shift habits. You know, we're going to get to a better place. Yeah. You know, because frankly, climate change is about carbon. And I sit on the board of directors now of the Woods Hole Research Institute, which is considered the world's you know, number one climate change think tank in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. And I'm learning a lot about the science behind uh, uh, climate change. And you know, when I, when I work with scientists like Aaron, you know, it's like it's impactful, it's important, and it's real. And but yet, scientists aren't the best communicators. So how do we take, so how do I finish? <laughs> <laughs> that's, why we, that's why you put me and Johnny on offense. <laughs> <laughs> not from that perspective of communication, but you know, as far as how to package the, the, the climate change story. So what I feel like I can be a participant, not being a scientist with Woods Hole, is being a participant and taking my, my friends and my compadres to be able to come into work work together to find a solution to be those communicators. And so that with Hillary on the water with people every day, with other brands that she represents, Garrison with Repping Water, I mean, we're, we're, we're making an impact. And, and I, but I think we have these friends that we all are a part of, that we realize that it's going to take us a team to get this done. It's not an individual brand. It's not individual people. It's really a team of people who give a damn. And I think that, you know, the more we have this passion, the more we start, you know, being evangelical, uh, you know, uh, participants in this whole process of talking about it with everybody we know, we're going to get to people who are going to make a change from, from a policy perspective. And I think that's what we all have to drive our efforts towards, uh, as far as making shifts that actually stick, uh, and not just, you know, wanting to make it we got to make it stick. Well, um, I do want to be cognizant of our time here because we do have um, an 11 o'clock after us, so I'd like at this time to open up the floor to see if anyone has any questions from our panelists here. Thanks for listening to the Sustainable Angler Podcast. Don't forget to follow us, and if you enjoyed this episode, like on Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. 
Thanks and have a good one.